0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Boston Confidential. This is our third episode, and today we're bringing you the case of Katrina Homer, a native of Sweden. This case happened in 1996 and is considered Boston's premier unsolved mystery. It is, in fact, a true whodunit. Just a little background on Katrina Homer. She was 20 years old and lived in Alliard, Sweden, a small town. By all accounts, Katrina was an excellent student and had been bitten by the travel bug. And she had won a $1,500 prize in some lottery in Sweden. I don't know if it was a scratch-off ticket or the daily number type of thing. But she used that money to pay for airfare to, to the United States and... In the interim, she set up an employment situation as an au au, au pair, I'm sorry, um, a nanny, basically. And she was placed with a couple in uh, the wealthy enclave of Dover, Massachusetts, probably the wealthiest enclave in Massachusetts next to Boston itself. It's very pricey, very ritzy. So Katrina comes over to the United States and is set up with this job in March of 1996. The deal she had struck with the couple, two artists, one a photographer and one a painter, allowed her to live in Dover, take care of two children at the residence during the week. But on the weekends, Katrina was given access to a loft on A Street in South Boston. It's in South Boston, but it's in the Fort Point section of of the neighborhood, and that's relatively close to downtown walking distance by most accounts. It's probably a 15 or 20 minute walk to downtown and back bay. By most accounts, Katrina's employment was going pretty well with this couple. Uh, the couple's name is Frank Rapp. He was the photographer, and his, wa- his wife, Susan Nitcher, N I C H T E R, was an accomplished painter. By most accounts, Katrina got along pretty well with Frank and Susan, and she simply adored the children, so things were going pretty well. At least as an outsider looking in, I believe you would have seen a happy R Pair and some happy children. The parents seemed to be absorbed in their careers and were happy to have Katrina around to help. Despite being underage, Katrina enjoyed the city's nightlife. By some accounts, she had fake IDs and she was a beautiful statuesque blonde who in 1996 probably wouldn't have been asked for an ID when entering a nightclub under any circumstances. From all outward appearances, it would seem that the business arrangement for all involved was going swimmingly. It came to light later that Katrina didn't actually feel this way, but I'd like to take you now to the day of the crime. It was Friday, June 21st, 1996, and as was her usual. Katrina clocked out of work and headed for the loft on A Street in South Boston where it was reported that she'd met some of her friends, some of which were uh, local au pairs that she had befriended uh, since March when she came over here. The reports on this, this timing before they left to go out clubbing for the night are sketchy. What is believed to have been happening, and I've taken these from various sources, but what is believed to have happened was Katrina and her friends met at the loft, and there's no real concrete information. I would have to assume they were partying a little bit before they got ready to go out for the night. And it is said, in various accounts, they either walked or, or had taken a taxi from A Street, from the Loft in A Street, to a place called Zanzibar, located in the Back Bay section of Boston. Katrina had been to Zanzibar before, and it was a pretty well-known hangout for European men and women in the city of Boston. Zanzibar was located on Boylston Place, which is an alleyway off of Boylston Street. In this area, when I say alleyway, don't get me wrong, it's, it's a pretty nice area, it's cobblestones, and there was several nice upscale bars and clubs within Boylston Place. So when Katrina and her friends got to the bar, Zanzibar, things were going as you'd expect, they were young people drinking and dancing around, but as the night wore on, It became apparent that Katrina was visibly intoxicated. At one point, there's varying reports on this. One report states that she had her head down on the table, hands in in head. Head in hands, I'm sorry. The other report was that Katrina was seen on the floor of the bathroom, passed out. One of the um, employees for Zanzibar was later interviewed, and he is the one that reported that Katrina was at the table with her head in her hands. He was going to assist her to a taxi, but, but got briefly delayed by another bar task. And by the time he returned to look for Katrina, she had already left. So we know at a certain point she departed Zanzibar, whether of her own accord or if she got thrown out. Some other reports say she just stepped out for some air. But it was late in the evening, and I believe closing time at that, at that place was uh, 2 a.m. That's what it is in the entire city of Boston. So I would think last call for alcohol would have been around 1.30. And at that time, it's reported about that time it's reported that Katrina was outside of Zanzibar. The reports that she continued her intoxicated type behavior and was dancing with a homeless guy. She was later observed with another individual, a very tall man who had a dog with him. And the thing about this this instance is they both had Superman T-shirts on that, That's correct. You did hear that both the owner and the dog had Superman T-shirts on. But there'll be more about that later, so stand by on that. There are some other disturbing instances of Katrina's behavior outside of the bar. Uh, One of her friends, one of the people she had arrived with, had noticed Katrina talking to men... She was either sitting in a gray Mitsubishi sedan or sitting around it with these men. And her male friend approached and was concerned for her safety. And as he approached, some type of argument ensued between Katrina's friend, who she'd arrived with, and these new people they were talking to. One of the new people they were talking to has been reported to say words to the effect of, Get the fuck away from the car or I'll crush your fucking head. The media reports are unclear on this because what my next question with something like this is, well, how did it resolve itself? Was there a fight? Did Katrina leave the car? Did she leave that group and walk on? What did her friend do? Did he attempt to place her in a cab, take him with her? The accounts on this section of reports is mystifying to say the least. What we do know is Katrina did continue on by herself and was last spotted from all accounts at the intersection of Boylston and Tremont streets. So we have a perfect storm here of a beautiful young girl visibly intoxicated and willing to talk to strangers. So she walks up to Boylston and Tremont and boom, she's in the ether. Okay, so now it's the early morning hours of Saturday, June 22nd, and Katrina was not due to work as it was a weekend, and the couple she was our for were home with their kids. Now, you have to keep in mind that this was in the days before cell phones, text messaging and all that, so to not hear from Katrina would not have been out of the ordinary, I'm sure friends thought she was just suffering from a hangover and would call them from the landline at the loft when she had an opportunity. Katrina's not heard from all day Saturday. And on Sunday, June 23rd, 1996, a homeless man who was digging through a dumpster on Commonwealth Avenue opened up a bag within the dumpster and saw a human arm. He naturally freaked out, and there were reports that he walked to a nearby police station. But regardless, he reported it to the police. The police responded and started with their crime scene analysis. The first thing they saw was half a human body in double bagged in black trash bags. The body was cut in half at the waist, or just below the waist, and the only thing that was present was the upper half of the torso. Tragically, this body was quickly identified as being Katrina Homer. The corpse, the body, had been thoroughly washed, and all of Katrina's makeup had been removed. The bottom half of Katrina's, of Katrina's body has never been found. They did do a pretty thorough and widespread search of dumpsters in that area, but no other body parts were ever found. There were some significant uh, markings on the body. It was believed Katrina had been strangled to death before she had been, I'm sorry, before she had been cut in half. There was also some ligature marks on the wrist indicating that Katrina had been bound. Some media reports stated that police sources relayed to them that they believed Katrina had been alive for approximately 24 hours after after she was last seen. Katrina was found at 1091 Boylston Street. It is a multi-story beautiful apartment condominium type building and that this this building was located about I don't know 2 Two and a half miles from Zanzibar in uh, a westerly direction. The building's actually very close to the Mass Pike. You could look out of the rear windows and see the Massachusetts Turnpike uh, right in the distance. I'm talking probably 80 or 90 feet from the rear of these dumpsters. One of the strange things about this dumping location is I don't think you would see, you wouldn't have seen the dumpsters from the street you would have to know that these dumpsters were present before that because you'd look down the alley as you look down the alley you wouldn't see the dumpsters the dumpsters were kind of kitty-cornered towards the property so if you came out of the back of the building and wanted to throw your trash away it's right there you know within throwing distance of the back door of the building the Fenway Park is probably about a half a mile from this location. It's highly traveled. It was has always been a pretty affluent area. High rents, high condominium prices, even back in 1996. This would lead me to believe that the person who dumped Katrina's body at this location would have some familiarity with the building. So like a lot in, the, in this case, there is sometimes contradictory information. I've read two accounts of how Katrina was identified. The first one was that the police had somehow identified her on their own. But what seems to be more believable is that after the police reported the clothing which the victim had been wearing, the police were quickly contacted by Frank Rapp and Susan Nietzsche. Katrina's employers. There's a lot of contradictory information in this case, and I kind of want to interrupt a little, interject, I guess. I don't think the police in this case do themselves any favors by letting these divergent press accounts run the timeline here. It's been over 20 years now since Katrina was murdered, and I believe a timeline and some new information released by the police would go a long way in refreshing people's memories and keeping this case active in the public's eye. I don't know why they refuse to do that, but that's just an old investigator talking, I guess. Okay, so getting back to the crime scene, I believe the police came to the conclusion pretty quickly that Katrina wasn't killed in this alley. She was only dumped there. What was found in the dumpster was Katrina was, for lack of a better word, double bagged in black garbage bags and obviously cut in half just at the pubic bone or just below. I think I mentioned before that the body was totally washed. Katrina's makeup had been removed. I'm not entirely sure if the clothing was in the bag with Katrina or simply discarded in the dumpster itself. If you take a look at some of the pictures that were provided by the news media and various accounts, you can see that this dumpster was nearly full. And it, that causes me to wonder, was the person who dumped Katrina so familiar with this building that he knew that the dumpsters would soon be emptied and emptied and Katrina would be taken to a landfill pretty quickly. It seems as though just by happenstance Katrina was discovered by this can collector. All right everybody, we're going to take this opportunity to take a little bit of a break. We'll get right back to this sad story as soon as we're done. Are you a local or international law firm that needs accurate, comprehensive, and timely background investigations and litigation support? Let Impact Due Diligence Investigations do the legwork. If there's information you need for a case, we'll find it. When you need to know, call Impact. Visit us at impactduediligence.com. All right, everybody, we're back. So, as I left you, Katrina's body was discovered in the dumpster at 1091 Boylston Street. The police, As I said before, the police believed that this was not the crime scene, and that has plagued the investigation to this date. We don't know where this murder occur- occurred as she was simply dumped in the dumpster. I'm going to take this opportunity to go over a little bit of the physical evidence in this, this case, and believe me, it's not going to take long. There simply isn't much of it. So what the police had discovered was... Katrina's severed body in the dumpster. There was very little blood within the trash bags. And the cutting of Katrina's body was done in such a way that just below the hip bone, the only real bone that would have had to been cut was the spine. So this, as grotesque as it seems, would have been a relatively easy job for someone, one person with maybe a sawzall type tool or something of that nature. There was only the spine to be snipped and that would naturally leave you with two halves of the body. The bottom half of Katrina's body has never been recovered and it was widely believed that this cutting of the body was to hide evidence of sexual assault or rape perhaps concealing DNA or other hair fiber evidence. The other portion of evidence that police found or at least, at least willing to tell the public about is one partial fingerprint on one of the trash bags. Naturally, they ran that through the APHIS computer system and there's been no hit on that partial fingerprint for over 20 years now. So just to recap, the actual phys- physical evidence is one partial fingerprint and whatever else was in the trash bags. Simply not a hell of a lot to go on. That being said, let's move on to some of the suspects in this case. Up until now, you would probably believe that Katrina was taken by a stranger as she was drunkenly walking through the city. And you may be right. But this case has taken some strange strange turns. So naturally, the police initially focused on Katrina's employers, Frank Rapp and Susan Nietzsche. From this point forward, I think I'm just going to call them the Rapps, if you don't mind, rather than repeating their full names each time I speak of them. The investigators proceeded to speak with these two, the Rapps, and pretty quickly They became agitated with police investigators and called in an attorney to represent them in this case and pretty quickly stopped cooperating altogether with the investigation. But keep in mind, these reports come from the media, not from the police themselves. The police in this case have been very tight-lipped. There have been some interviews from homicide investigators in this case, but they reveal very little about the actual case. So this all occurred on Sunday, June 24th, 1996. The, the raps are question, and like I said, they had lawyered up pretty quickly, but it quickly became apparent that others in uh, Frank Rapp's orbit, if you will, believed he was a little creepy when it came to women. I believe these type of comments came from more than one woman in the RAPS sphere of influence. There have been reports saying that the RAPS had become actually hostile to police during this portion of the investigation. The police have never refuted this allegation, but they haven't refuted much or confirmed much in this case. So I leave that up to your judge. At 9 p.m. on the night of June 24th, that Sunday, there was a fire at Frank, Frank and Susan Rapp's condominium in Dover. Now, they shared a common dumpster, from what I can gather, with other residents in, in the complex and just a few other residents. But there was a fire in the dumpster, and the Dover police responded. They did alert Boston police in the contents of the dumpster and what had been placed on fire, however caught on fire, I don't know, Um, that had been forensically examined and apparently seemed to be unrelated to Katrina Homer or her case. But you'd have to admit, this is a startling coincidence that just after the raps are interviewed by the police, there's a fire at their dumpster, in their dumpster. So what had been consumed, fully consumed by the fire... I have no idea, but that must have really gotten a bee in the bonnet of the investigators in this case. Police in this case have been thoroughly tight-lipped on any suspects in this investigation, and I can understand why. But the RAPs were prime suspects as because they had interacted with Katrina on a daily basis. On the face of it, the RAPs may have an alibi though Their one of their parent one of their parents their in-laws i guess w- were in town for that weekend and they had reportedly spent almost every hour together so they appeared to be confirmed to be home in dover when all of this was happening in boston so investigators may have ruled them out pretty quickly but the other information that came to light that women in Frank Rapp's orbit found him creepy and combined with the fire, I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure they should be fully discounted or if they ever were. Years after this case, uh, Susan, Susan Itcher painted some artwork that many have said seem to be related to Katrina Homer. I guess it was some type of hellscape really. I've researched this online. I couldn't find it for the life of me. So if you guys come up with um, a rendition of her painting, please send me a copy if you get a chance and you could send that to Barry at bostonconfidential.net I'd love to see that The next person of interest in this case I'd like to discuss with you is Herb Witten. If you remember earlier in the podcast, I had stated that Katrina had been observed outside of the bar speaking with a man dressed in a Superman T-shirt who also had a dog with him, a large dog, a great Pyrenees who also had on a Superman shirt. That was Herb Witten. Now, the only way to describe Mr. Witten is strange. It appears from several accounts that Mr. Witten would take his dog into Boston from Andover, uh Tony suburb, about 30, 40 minutes north. So he'd take his dog in and walk around as the bars closed in downtown Boston and try to talk to women who would find the fact that his dog and him had Superman shirts on, you know, kind of cute, and that would spur a conversation with them. I think today, Herb would be called, if not a predator, pretty close to it. So as you can imagine, when this came to light for the police, I think the bells and whistles went on further investigation revealed that on the night that Katrina disappeared, Herb Witten was pulled over for speeding. But the news accounts differ on this, and the police, again, have never cleared this up. We've never seen a town where Herb was pulled over for speeding. We've never seen the actual citation, the ticket, in any media reports. But there's been some other media reports that state he was originally pulled over for suspicion of drunken driving. Some news reports say that his car was searched, others make no mention of it. If it was a speeding stop or even a drunk driving stop that didn't result in arrest, I don't know what grounds the police would have to search his vehicle. So you'd probably see the dog in the vehicle, but if there was somebody else, say in the trunk or anywhere else, I don't think the police would would see that. So in terms of an alibi, it definitely places Mr. Witten at a certain location, at a certain time. It doesn't mean that somebody wasn't deceased in the trunk, drugged in the trunk, or anything else. Mr. Witten was relatively well known in the area for conducting himself in the aforementioned fashion with the supermo- Superman... T shirts for him and the dog, and I think that would be looked at a little a little differently today. It is reported that Mr. Witten was the last person to see Katrina Homer alive as they talked outside of Zanzibar or at least in the area of Boylston Street. I think it's fair to say that the police considered Mr. Witten a suspect, but approximately one year After the disappearance of Katrina Homer, Mr. Witten committed suicide, but the manner in which he killed himself actually raises more questions. Mr. Witten sliced his own throat and that's, well, let's just say that's an extremely violent way to end your life when we all know there's other more tranquil ways to go. so. If Mr. Witten was capable of slicing his own throat, would he have been capable of cutting Katrina Homer in half? Great question. Still remains unanswered. I do believe Mr. Witten deserves another look in this case. Okay. The next, the next suspect in this case, at least in terms of the newspaper, was a Boston police officer that Katrina had been dating. I don't know how serious this relationship was, but this Boston, unnamed Boston police officer, in most reports, and actually all reports, we've, we've never had his name publicly, publicly released. I think Boston police detectives pretty quickly discounted him as a suspect. He was dating Katrina, but he was found to be out of town during this time frame where the m- murder was committed. and. It's, it would seem that his alibi was airtight, and the police moved on from him pretty quickly. One of the lesser-known suspects in this murder was a now I don't even want to call him suspects, at least person of interest. Was a gentleman by the name of John Swice Z E W I Z Z. He was described as an industry uh, an industrial musician in a band called Sleep Chamber. This this sleep chamber band had some themes of S&M and bondage within their music. Zweis was also described as a heroin addict, and it was reported that his addiction was getting worse. It later came to light that in some of his music, Zweis actually places himself at the scene of the murder. He did live pretty close to um, where the body was found on Boylston Street, but no charges were ever filed against him. And I really don't know how the police got on to Mr. Zweis as a suspect. Again, I don't think the police are doing themselves any favors by continuing to play this so close to the vest after all these years. That's just my personal opinion. I, I don't know if you agree or not. I know the police have to hold things back in terms of the integrity of the investigation, but this has been going on for 20 years. I I think if some of these people were discounted, they should get that news and so should the public. But here we are, still a mystery. It seems what hampers the police the most in this investigation is the lack of a crime scene. The dump site at 1091 Boylston Street was just that. But let's just for a second think of what happened here. Whomever took Katrina Homer had to conduct this murder in private. And if not the murder, I know she could have been killed in a car, strangled in the car. But it appears from early media reports that Katrina was kept alive for about 24 to 30 hours. So... Where exactly was she kept? Did she scream? Make noise? Did the device used in sawing her apart? Did that make noise? The suspect would, I believe, would have to have some medical training knowing how to cut just below the pubic bone, so there he does not have to disconnect any other bones beside the spine. Also. I believe this person, and I'm going to call him a man because this is typically crimes that men do, would be intimately familiar with this area. As I've stated before, Mr. Witten deserves a closer look on this, but also there's an unnamed suspect here, the suspect, the person who did it. I'm going to tell you my theory of the case, and feel free to email me with yours. I believe this person who did this murder, this horrific murder, was driving around Boston. And this was a crime of opportunity. Beautiful drunken woman who he may have observed who was willing to talk to strangers. He gets her in his car and either disables her in the car or takes her somewhere, you know, pretending there's another party somewhere. And they get to that location and there is no party and it's just the end of Katrina. Katrina was looking to continue the party that night. And I believe she would have gotten into a vehicle with someone else, whether it be for a ride home or to continue her night out somewhere else. So I believe this person had either a murder or rape kit with him or at his house and was constantly looking for an opportunity. And he found one in Katrina Homer. I believe she was killed locally somewhere in the back bay, dismembered somewhere private where this killer had means and opportunity to do exactly as he did. And then Katrina was disposed of in the dumpster at Boylston Street. And he was also familiar with that area. I do believe that this homicide was committed by somebody unknown to Katrina Homer and that that makes this more difficult to solve because it kind of comes out of nowhere. He may have done it before, he may have done it since, but there is no physical evidence tying him to her life. And then I believe if this if this crime was committed today, you'd have a lot more uh, covert cameras on street corners businesses and all that where you could track Katrina on her travels throughout the city there was none of that during these. this 1996 in Boston there'd also be text messages being able to track her phone but again none of that was available in 1996 I do think a complete stranger did this to Katrina and that makes it all the more difficult to solve The case is still listed as unsolved with the Boston police, but I had read recently that the FBI conducted another profile in this case. But again, no information has been released to the public. And to be quite frank, I think that's a mistake at this point. It's been over 20 years since Katrina was murdered. And the police seem to be holding back a lot of evidence. I know they do have to hold back some, and I I don't hold that against them. But it's time for some new information to come out. Release the profile. Maybe somebody will see that in a loved one or somebody else in their life. This is a horrific murder that needs to be solved. And if you know anything, I'm going to ask you to call the Boston Police Cold Case Unit at 617-343-4470. If you have any information, no matter how small it may be, please call that number and let them know. And let's get the ball rolling on this. And when this murder is, is found, I'm going to do another episode on this case. I promise you that. I wish I had a better ending to Boston's most enduring mystery, but I don't. Still open and unsolved. So take a look at some of this information. Tell, let me know what you think. Feel free to get back to me at Barry at bostonconfidential.net. Thanks, everybody. And we're going to be getting on to our next episode, and we're going to be covering the Boston bombings, the bombings that occurred at the marathon in 2013. And I just want to give you a little hint. We're going to have a very special guest covering that case with me, so stay tuned for that one. All right, everybody. We're going to get out of here. Enjoy. The rest of your week. It's beautiful weather out there. And like I say, if you have any information on the Katrina Homer case, call Boston Police Cold Case Unit at 617-343-4470. Thanks everybody. Talk to you soon.